0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Zeke Hausfather, Director of Climate and Energy at the Breakthrough Institute. I'll ask Zeke about the past, present, and future of global greenhouse gas emissions. We'll talk in detail about the emissions trajectory that the world is currently on, and how that pathway looks different from some of the worst-case scenarios that researchers have used in the past. We'll also talk about the crucial uncertainties that still remain when it comes to estimating future global warming under any given emissions pathway. Stay with us. Okay, Zeke Hausfather from the Breakthrough Institute, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio.
1: It is great to be here.
0: So Zeke, we're going to talk today about recent trends in uh, greenhouse gas emissions as well as sort of looking towards the future about greenhouse gas emissions and trying to get a sense of what pathway we might be on and what pathways we might not be on. Um, But before we do that, we always like to ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental topics. So uh, what brought you into this field? So it's
1: sort of a a long and and twisting path, uh, (laughs) how I ended up doing sort of climate science and energy system modeling. I think the the most formative thing for me was uh, probably as a freshman in college um, back in 2001. Uh, I read uh, Bill McKibben's The End of Nature, um, Mm -hmm. which was sort of the first time I'd really, you know, become aware of the climate issue and and what it meant. Um, And so that book was really formative to me. Um, I spent a while as a college student uh, being a a climate activist, um, ended up... uh, Later on, going to work in the clean tech world as a data scientist, uh, co-founded a company called Efficiency 2.0 that competed with Opower in the behavior-based efficiency space. Hmm. Um, for many years, did climate science as a hobby, sort of grew out of my data science work, um, particularly around observational temperature records, reconstructing global temperatures, worked with the Berkeley Earth Group, for example. Uh, and then eventually got a little bored of energy efficiency and decided that my hobby was a lot more interesting than my career. Went back, got a PhD, and uh, now I do climate science and energy modeling as a, a full-time gig.
0: That's awesome. And of course, no, no offense to our energy efficiency enthusiasts out there. We, we love you, too.
1: No, energy efficiency is hugely important, but 10 years was a, a good amount of time to spend on it.
0: <laughs> Great. Okay. So, um, so as I mentioned, we're going to talk about uh, future greenhouse gas emissions uh, today and sort of trying to understand what trajectory the world might be on um, and what that means for global temperatures. But first, I think it'll be useful to start just with a little bit of history. So can you give us a, a short overview of recent trends in global greenhouse gas emissions? And this will probably be broadly familiar to many uh, of our listeners. But can you just kind of give us a sense of how fast greenhouse gas emissions have risen in recent years and how that might compare to previous decades that we've seen?
1: Sure. So the recent years, the the last two decades are very distinct. Um, you know, back in the year 2000, China had roughly half the emissions as the US. Um, you know, global emissions had been growing modestly, you know, since 1990. Uh, but suddenly, you know, right around 2001, 2002, there was uh, a turning point where China started adding an immense amount of coal. Uh, their economy is growing very rapidly. they were building, you know, a new coal plant almost every day. Um, and their emissions over the course of just six years doubled. Um, you know, they went from about three and a half gigatons of CO2 to about seven gigatons of CO2. Um, At the same time, there was also a rapid increase in the rest of the world's emissions, driven largely by coal. You know, the the period from 2000-2010 was all about a global build-out of coal, particularly in the the developing world. Um, Since 2010, however, and particularly since about 2012-2013, the picture has changed a little bit. Uh, Global coal use peaked uh, around 2012-2013 and is still lower than it was back then. Um, Global emissions were pretty flat from... You know, 2013 through 2016 or so, uh, before ticking up in 2017 and 2018. Um, And, you know, it's the picture's really changed in in terms of what the drivers of increasing emissions are. Um, You know, 2019, the jury's still out on what the final number is going to be, uh, but it looks like most estimates are either of a a fairly flat or modest increase in emissions globally. uh, And that's almost entirely driven by uh, increases in Chinese emissions. the rest of the world didn't change much at all between 2018 and 2019. And what's interesting, particularly in the last few years, is that you know global coal use is no longer the biggest driver of increasing emissions. Um, these days, it's actually natural gas that's adding more CO2 emissions than anything else. Um, that, in some ways, is a better thing than if you know the emissions were still coming from coal, because... A lot of the natural gas that's being added is either replacing coal or meeting new demand. But that new demand would have likely been met by coal in a world where we didn't have as much natural gas. You know? The renewables are also a big part of that picture and they were the second biggest addition of energy last year after natural gas globally. Uh, but you know, gas is the biggest driver of emission increases in recent years.
0: Right. And oil, too, has been pretty substantial, right? We are seeing growth of oil demand in the neighborhood of 1 million barrels to 2 million barrels per day over the last few years. So that's still a pretty pretty yeah, substantial no, no. chunk of growth.
1: Oil is definitely, you know, consistently increasing over time, though it's only been about half of the additional CO2 the gas has added uh, for the last three years, at least.
0: Right, great. Okay, thank you. That's super useful context. Um, so with that. Uh, brief snapshot of where we are and where we have been over the last couple of decades. Can you, um, we're going to turn to the future. So before we talk about future pathways for emissions, um, let's uh, define at least one term, which is representative concentration pathway or RCP. Um, When we think about future emissions trajectories, people often refer to RCPs. So can you give us a brief overview of what RCPs are, including uh, when and why they were originally developed?
1: Sure. So RCP stands for Representative Concentration Pathway. Um, and they were developed in the lead up to the IPCC fifth assessment report, which came out in 2013. Uh, and the interesting story behind the RCPs is, is that there was a previous energy modeling effort called the SRES scenarios, which stands for the Special Report on Emission Scenarios. It's kind of an odd name for a set of scenarios, but so it goes. Um, and the SRES scenarios were interesting in that they modeled like four different socioeconomic futures um it like a1 a2 b1 b2 each of which had different gdp a different uh, set of global population growth and they presented a whole bunch of different scenarios that were all baseline scenarios in our SRAS. and by baseline i mean essentially how the world could evolve if there were no additional climate policy beyond what was in place at time at the time the scenarios were created um, and so it looked at a whole bunch of different possible futures that ranged from, you know, as low as about three degrees warming to as high as, you know, five degrees warming by, by 2100. And so that set of scenarios was originally created, you know, around the year 2000. So it was getting pretty old by the time the, the 2013 IPCC report was coming up. And so there was a big desire to create a new set of uh, emission scenarios and socioeconomic scenarios to model what might happen in the future. Um, the problem was that, climate modelers needed these scenarios at least you know, two or three years ahead of time in order to have time to run the supercomputer models uh, to produce the climate simulations needed for the IPCC fifth assessment report. And the energy system modelers didn't have enough time to do a full set of new socioeconomic futures. And so as a stopgap measure, they created these four representative concentration pathways that were broadly, um, you know, for... Levels roughly consistent with some of the levels in the the previous SRAS scenario, as well as some more aggressive mitigation scenarios. Um, And the idea was these four representative concentration pathways ended up far enough apart in 2100 that you get climate model outputs that are very distinct. That was one of the main uh, impetuses behind it. Um, And so what's interesting, though, is unlike the SRAS scenarios where they were all potential no-policy baselines the RCPs only had one scenario that was created by an integrated assessment model that didn't have a carbon price in it, and that's RCP 8.5. Both RCP 6 and RCP 4.5 were consistent with the range of no policy baselines in the literature, but the actual model used to generate them uh, did have a carbon price. You know, It's possible both to have a modest mitigation scenario and a optimistic baseline scenario that overlap each other, right? Um, and so... What we ended up with with the RCPs was this case where only one of the scenarios was generated as truly a baseline scenario, but that scenario RCP point five was not particularly representative of the full range of baselines in the literature. It was roughly the the ninetieth percentile of of baselines when it was created. So, of all of the integrated assessment modeling runs that people had done looking at potential outcomes in the absence of climate policy, RCP 8.5 was around the ninetieth percentile of those in terms of emissions, um, and you know. It's as we can talk about in a bit. It's become substantially less likely since then. Um, what's happened in recent years is the the replacement for the old SRA scenarios has finally been completed. Um, it's called the the SSPs or the Shared Socioeconomic Pathways. They had originally planned for it to be completed before the the 2013 IPCC report to merge the RCPs back into this more consistent socioeconomic modeling framework. That ended up not happening. You know, it took another four years longer than they thought, or five years. <clears throat> but we finally have a new set of scenarios uh called the SSPs that has, you know, consistent socioeconomics across all the models that looks at a whole wide range of baseline no policy outcomes um and gives us a much uh better infrastructure of of scenarios to work with uh going forward. Um
0: Right. Great. Got it. So um the the RCPs that are most commonly used today, uh there are four of them. There's RCP 2.6, 4.0, uh, 6.0 and then 8.5 Is it 6.0 or 6.5? I can never remember. It's a 4.5 and 6.0, but yeah. (laughs) Okay, great. Um, And just in case you heard sirens in the background there while Zeke was speaking, the RCP police are after you. So watch out.
1: (laughs) Um, It's an occupational hazard of being in downtown Oakland.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. So um, let's talk now about one particular RCP that has received a lot of attention, uh, which you uh, mentioned just a moment ago, and which you write about with Glenn Peters uh, in a recent article in the journal Nature. Um, where you essentially make the case that RCP 8.5 appears extremely unlikely, far more unlikely than it was, as you suggested, uh, when it was initially developed. Um, can you explain briefly why, like, what, what about RCP 8.5 makes it uh, so unlikely?
1: Sure. And to, to give an important caveat, what we're really arguing in this nature piece is that the emissions scenario underlying RCP 8.5 is is unlikely. Mm-hmm. Um There's multiple different ways to get to that sort of radiative forcing, and and I'll get into that in a little bit. But but to back up and discuss our nature piece, essentially, um, as I mentioned, RCP 0.5 was originally uh, generated uh, using roughly the 90th percentile of no policy emission scenarios in the literature. And in practice, what that means is it was generated using a scenario where global coal use expands dramatically by the end of the century. So in RCP 8.5 emission scenario, uh, the world is using roughly five times more coal by 2100 than it's using today. Now, when this scenario was originally created in the mid-2000s or late 2000s, That didn't seem like that crazy an assumption, right? You know, the world had been adding coal at an accelerating rate. You know, Chinese emissions had doubled in the course of five years. Um, And so projecting that sort of increase out to the future um, with coal meeting the the majority of, of energy demand was, you know, not necessarily the most realistic assumption, but it was a reasonable assumption to make. Uh, today, in a world where global coal use peaked in 2013, where clean energy prices are falling, where 2019 saw a record decline in global coal use, uh, the idea that we're going to turn around, re-embrace coal in a huge way, and have it drive pretty much all the growth in global energy use over the next century is is uh, very unlikely. And so what we're pointing out in this nature piece is that that scenario... Um, we need to stop referring to it as business as usual or as you know the most likely outcome of current policies. You know we can't necessarily preclude the possibility that the world will decide to burn all the remaining coal we have, um, but it's much more of a worst case scenario now than a, a likely outcome. Um, and part of the problem, as we point out in this Nature comment, is that. The fact that RCP 0.5 was was never intended to be business as usual was not communicated very well to the larger climate science community. You know, if you read the original energy modeling papers that created these scenarios, it's pretty clear that it was the 90th percentile. But uh, a lot of climate science papers in the intervening years have referred to it as business as usual. And so we're making the argument that we really need to stop doing that. Now, you know... The emission scenario underlying RCP 0.5 is not quite the same as the concentration scenario RCP 8.5. Um So when RCPs are, are called representative concentration pathways, and they're called representative because, you know, the model that generated it is one of a number of possible ways to get to that level of radiative forcing. So for example, if we had a world where we only increased coal 300% instead of 500%, but you know, carbon cycle feedbacks, so carbon from melting permafrost, from, uh, you know, the Amazon turning into a more of a savanna-like ecosystem, from changing ocean chemistry, if those carbon cycle feedbacks end up being higher than our models currently think they are, which, you know, is a real uncertainty we have, you could potentially get to that level of concentrations with a somewhat lower emissions pathway. You know, certainly not on a a current policy's trajectory, it would be really hard to get to 8.5 watts per meter squared, but if we, you know had three times current coal use by the end of the century. We can't rule that sort of outcome out. Um, And so there's different ways to get to that level of forcing. Similarly, all of these RCPs are based around the end of the century, the year 2100. And it's important to emphasize that the world does not end in 2100. Our models just end in 2100. And so as long as we keep emitting CO2 and other greenhouse gases, the world will continue warming. And so even if we don't get to you know, this RCP 0.5, you know, five degree warming outcome by 2100, it, if we keep emitting at current levels, we'll probably get there before 2200, right? right. Yeah. And if we keep increasing emissions, we'll probably get there by 2150. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're not out of the woods on that front. Um, and then finally, there's big uncertainties in climate sensitivity. Um, so if you look at how climate modelers turn future emissions into warming, there's three different sources of uncertainty, One is, what are future emissions, right? Are they going to be low? Are they going to be high? Um, That's something that really comes down to to socioeconomics, to political decisions, that you can't really use physics-based models to predict. You can just look at a a different range of possible emissions. But beyond that, there's also the carbon cycle feedbacks I mentioned earlier. So like how much additional carbon is released from things like permafrost as the earth warms. Uh, And then there's climate sensitivity uncertainty. So how does warming affect the behavior of clouds? How does it affect... The reflectivity of the Earth's surface? How does it affect the amount of water vapor in the atmosphere? And all of these things act as feedbacks that reinforce the warming you'd otherwise have and and potentially make it stronger. And so, if you look at the climate models for a given emission scenario, say a scenario where global CO2 emissions double by the end of the century, you could have anywhere between about 1.5 and 4.5 degrees warming per doubling CO2 at equilibrium. And that itself is a wide range of uncertainty. And so, that means that even under a more modest emission scenarios, uh, you know, we can't rule out potential high warming outcomes. So we point out in, in our comment in Nature that current policies, so the policies that countries have in place today, um, if you extend them through the end of the century, we'd be on track for probably somewhere around three degrees warming. Uh, but that's a best estimate, you know, assuming that we know what carbon cycle feedbacks and climate sensitivity is. You know, if, if you take the uncertainties from those into account, we could probably have anywhere between you know, 2.3 and 4.4 degrees warming under current policies by the end of the century. Um, and so we can't necessarily rule out these very high-end warming outcomes of 4 degrees plus even in a current policy world.
0: Right. So even though, the, right, so like one way that I sort of internalized this when I was reading your, your piece is that even a, even though we uh, think that an, an emissions trajectory like RCP 8.5 is very, very unlikely, some of the warming effects that we could Experience uh, might be more in the range of what people think of as an RCP eight point five outcome, even under a sort of lower emissions trajectory.
1: Yeah, um, but at the same time, you know, if if climate sensitivity is on the high end and we were on an RCP eight point five emissions trajectory, we'd have like seven degrees warming, right? Right. And so that sort of you know truly nightmarish outcome is is no longer on the table. Uh, Well, very it's very unlikely to be on the table, which is a good thing. Um, And as we also point out in our comments, you know it's a lot harder to meet Paris Agreement targets of limiting warming b- below two degrees if the world is on track for warming of five degrees. Like the, the socioeconomics needed, the, the population growth, the level of technological progress, et cetera, uh, that can get the world to five degrees makes it really hard to get down to two degrees. And so the fact that we're in a more modest baseline scenario now, or, or a cur- more modest current policy scenario, means that you know it is a lot more possible to bend that curve down. Um, and so that is a reason for hope. You know, we are making progress. We have falling clean energy prices. We have, you know, uh, clean uh, renewables were the single largest uh, source of new electricity added worldwide last in 2018, um, which is a, a big change from previous years. And so, you know, the trends are moving in the right direction, but not nearly fast enough to to get to where we need to in terms of, you know, these climate targets.
0: Right. And before we move on, there are a couple of terms that you mentioned that I just want to kind of pause and define uh, for listeners who might not be as familiar with this subject matter. Uh, one of them was radiative forcing, and the other one was uh, you used um, the phrase watts per meter squared, which uh, which is in reference to the RCPs. So can you briefly define for us radiative forcing for people who don't have uh, sort of geophysical background and then tell us, uh uh, what watts per meter squared means and how it refers to the numbers in the RCPs. Basically, uh, a preview of this is that uh, the RCPs, the numbers that are attached to them, 2.6, uh, 8.5, and so on, are uh, in reference to watts per meter squared. So first, can you give us radiative forcing definition, and then watts per meter squared?
1: Sure. So so the RCP numbers actually are the radiative forcing in that scenario in the year 2100. And watts per meter squared is the unit in which the radiative forcing is, is uh, calculated. Um, so radiative forcing, essentially, the the simple version is it's the amount of additional heat that's being trapped by the atmosphere. So if, if we had left, you know, CO2 at pre-industrial levels, the Earth would roughly be in equilibrium. The amount of energy coming in from the sun would be balanced by the amount of energy uh, radiating back to space, and the temperature of the planet doesn't really change. Uh, but as we add more greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, suddenly we have more heat coming into the system than is going out of the system. And that energy imbalance is calculated in watts, units of watts per meter squared. Um, so essentially, how many watts of energy for every square meter of the planet is being added to the Earth's system, um, compared to how much is, is radiating back to space. Um, and so that's how we define radiative forcing. And it's kind of a a nice unit to take all of these different greenhouse gases and aerosols and various other factors that affect the climate and put them together into a single unit that reflects, for any given period of time, how much additional heat is being trapped.
0: Great, and so it does. It does take into account all of the different um, greenhouse gases uh, that that could be playing a role, not just CO two.
1: Well, not just greenhouse gases. It takes into account reflective aerosols. It takes into account changes in albedo, so how reflective the surface of the Earth is. You know, if, for example, you know you have less snow cover in a warming world, you have more bare ground that's absorbing more heat. Um, so pretty much anything that affects the amount of heat that is retained in the Earth system gets included in these radiative forcing estimates.
0: Great. Um, so yeah, my ignorance of climate science uh, being exposed once again. Um, so. Let's uh, turning from the st- sort of discussion of which pathway we're on and and um, what the equilibrium climate sensitivity might be and, and, rel- and related issues. When you think about this from a policy making perspective, um, you know I I know your background is in climatology, but you think a lot about policy and and um, policy decisions that have evolved over time. What are some of the kind of major implications of both the fact that we appear it appears very unlikely that we're on a rcp 8.5 type emissions trajectory and also what are the implications of the uncertainty that still remains around whatever trajectory we happen to be on
1: so in terms of the need to mitigate climate change this doesn't change much at all right you know the the need to limit warming below two degrees as um, codified in the paris agreement never was based on having a five degree counterfactual right you know, whether, whether the world is on track for 5 degrees or 4 degrees or 3 degrees, we still need to mitigate to try to get to as close to 2 degrees or below as possible. Um, and so the steps that countries need to take in terms of mitigation don't really fundamentally change uh, depending on the baseline. Um, where it does affect some policy decisions is around adaptation. So, you know, if a 5-degree world is much less likely, if, if the, you know, 2 meters of sea level rise high-end estimate associated with RCP 8.5 is much less likely than it used to be, um, you know, our planning for adaptation this century changes a little bit as well, you know, um, we may want to make decisions for a worst case outcome of four degrees instead of five degrees and, and all the various impacts that would entail across agriculture and, and ocean rise and, um, heat stress and other issues, uh, or other impacts of climate change, um. So, so yeah, I, th- I think it's more on the adaptation side that this changes the policy calculus and the mitigation side. we're We're still very far from being you know, on a pathway toward two degrees that we need to be. Um, and so the the types of actions countries need to
0: take on on mitigation don't really change. Yeah, that makes sense. And um so you've um you've sort of answered all my questions <laughs> that I had planned in advance um, when talking about. Uh, these issues. But I wonder if there are any questions that I haven't asked or any topics that you sort of want to expand on around sort of this general uh, topic area that we haven't talked about yet.
1: Uh, Sure. So I can mention briefly, you know, one of the big uncertainties in future warming is uh, climate sensitivity. And that's an area that we've been really hard pressed to reduce the uncertainty of, uh, and in fact, in some ways, it's a little embarrassing for the climate science community because back in 1979, uh, Jules Charney published a big report, and in that report, they estimated that if we double CO2 in the atmosphere, the world will likely warm somewhere between 1.5 and 4.5 degrees centigrade. <laughs> right. And fast forward to 2013, in the last big IPCC report. And lo and behold, the range of expected warming for doubling CO2 is 1.5 to 4.5 degrees centigrade. Now, uh, Charney was probably a little, uh, you know, over uh, confident in his estimate back in 79. And, you know, we certainly have a lot more evidence now that sensitivity is probably not likely less than 1.5 degrees and not likely that much over 4.5 degrees. But uh, it's still a, a really tough thing to narrow the estimates of. Um, and you know, there's been a lot of talk recently, because the latest generation of climate models, the ones that are currently in the works um, for the upcoming IPCC sixth assessment report, which will be released in 2021, uh, a number of those models show very high climate sensitivity values. So essentially, saying that if we double CO2, the earth might warm by five or 5.5 degrees. Um, And if that's the case, you know, that really is worrying, you know, it means that it it's almost impossible to limit warming to below two degrees, for example. Um, It means that, you know, a scenario that you thought would give you three degrees warming might give you, you know, four and a half degrees warming instead, um, if climate sensitivity is actually that high. Um, But thankfully, you know, we shouldn't overinterpret these results. Um, You know, only about 70 of the 30 models that have reported values so far have very high sensitivity estimates. The rest don't. Um, The rest are pretty much in line with the previous generation of models.
0: Sorry, Jake, just one quick mm-hmm. clarification. You said, I think you meant to say seven of the 30, but it sounded like you said 70 of the 30. Did you, oh, could you clarify? I, I meant
1: seven of the 30, yes. Okay, good.
0: Yeah. <laughs> 70 of the 30 would be, that'd be really something.
1: <laughs> no, the, seven of the 30 models that have reported so far have very high sensitivity values. Um, we expect about 100 models to ultimately uh, participate in the current round of climate modeling. Um, And so, you know, it's a little premature to judge what's going to happen with the full uh, 100 models based on just seven. Uh, And so, you know, it, it certainly, you know, means that there are real risks of high sensitivity that we need to take into account. There are long tails in these estimates that are really hard to fully eliminate. But at the same time, we have other lines of evidence from the Earth's distant past, from the observational temperature record, um, from these things called emergent constraints, where you look at, you know, how other climate variables we can observe are related to climate sensitivity in models. And all of these lines of evidence suggest that climate sensitivity is probably around three degrees per doubling, um, you know, again, with this range of, of 1.5 to 4.5 or so. Um, and so it's probably premature to, to, you know, conclude that climate sensitivity is higher than we previously thought, even though, you know, this is yet another bit of evidence that there are long tails of uncertainties that we need to take into account.
0: Right that's super interesting that'll be really fascinating to watch over the next few months and maybe years or two um as these you know the results uh, the full results start to come in and i'd also uh, suggest to listeners if they want to sort of um get a sense of some of the policy implications of the the long tails that Zeke was referring to. We did an episode, uh, I want to say about six or seven months ago with Gernot Wagner from Harvard, where we mostly talked about uh, his mentor, the late uh, Dr. Marty Weitzman, who did a lot of policy uh, work around, or I should say, sort of more theoretical work around the implications of those long tails. Uh, and then we had Bob Litterman on the show a couple months ago where we talked about the same thing. So it's certainly, you know this question of equilibrium climate sensitivity and how long are the tails is, is one that people are thinking pretty hard about uh, in the policymaking community. So um, with that, uh, I think we're gonna close it out. And uh, now, Zeke, I wanna ask you the same question that we ask all of our guests, which is what have you heard or watched or read recently related to the environment or climate change or any relevant topic that you think uh, is really interesting and that you'd recommend to our listeners. And I'll just briefly start us off with a really cool, a uh, news story that I read in the New York Times uh, from a couple weeks back now. Uh, the article was called Wild Storms and Shifting Ice two explorers talk about Arctic life. And uh, it was a really nice kind of visual, heavy, interactive article that I read online that showed uh, lots of pictures and some videos from these two uh, scientists who were working up in the Arctic uh, measuring, I think, taking ice core samples to try to get a sense of paleoclimate, or I, I don't actually know what they were doing with the ice core samples, but they were definitely taking ice core samples and then learning stuff. The ice core samples. Um, and it was a really fun article. It kind of gave you a sense of what it might be like to to actually be up at one of those stations. Uh, so how about you, Zeke? What, uh, what have you been listening to and what's on the top of your reading stack?
1: Sure. So uh, the most recent thing I read that was quite interesting was um, uh, some of my colleagues at Carbon Brief have been working for about a year on this big uh, explainer on climate tipping points, um, which is a, an issue that's very much in the public eye at the moment. Yeah. Um, and so they just published it yesterday, um, and so it's a a really long article on, on CarbonBrief.org uh, that goes into all the different tipping points, interviews a bunch of the top scientists uh, in each of those fields, and sort of tries to provide a good summary of like what we know, what we don't know, where the real uncertainty is, um, and you know how. Sometimes, you know, the science is is not quite as clear in terms of tipping points as as gets portrayed in the media. Um, So that was a a really helpful article in in looking into that. Um, On a slightly different note, something I I read recently that, you know, touches a little on the environment, but in an indirect way, is I I read a um, quite excellent series of books by N.K. Jameson um, called The Broken Earth Trilogy. Mm -hmm. Um, It it won, uh, I think, all three of them won the Hugo Award, which is the, the first time, which is the biggest uh, award in science fiction and fantasy, which I think is the first time an author has ever had three Hugos in a row for, for a trilogy. Um, and it's a really interesting look at a, a, a fictional world um, that's very much defined by tectonics and, and uh, geology. Um, and sort of exploring how that might shape societies um, is was quite interesting. So uh, if you need something that's a, a little bit of a break from the dry academic articles, I'd, I'd recommend the Broken Earth series by N.K. Jameson.
0: Great. Yeah, we'll, we'll put up a link to both the Carbon Brief article and uh, that series that you mentioned on the show page. And I want to note that we're recording this on February 11th. Uh, it might air a couple weeks from that time. So, um, so we'll make sure you can find the link to the Carbon Brief article because you probably... It won't be uh, yesterday when when you're listening to this episode uh, that it would have been published. Um, So let's close it out there. And uh, once again, I want to say thank you so much, Zeke, for joining us today on Resources Radio and talking to us about uh, RCPs, equilibrium climate sensitivity, and, and so many other fascinating topics. We really appreciate it.
1: No worries. It was great to be here.
0: You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute... We'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at RFF org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of resources for the future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.